Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. And don't forget, now is the time for Simple Homebrewing as we're headed into the new year. Yeah, right. You know, and I just had a conversation with somebody on Facebook, and they said, I was going to buy that book, but I thought, well, that's a beginner's book. It's like, let me assure all you guys, this is not a beginner's book in spite of the title, and it's uh, experienced homebrewers who need the simple philosophy most. There you go. And speaking of experience, between the two of us, we have nearly 50 years of such things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange and sessionable ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. So on today's episode, this is going to be a quick start to the new year. We're going to head to the pub and just talk about a couple things that happened with us over the holidays before we head into the lounge to talk to Martin Keene of Homebrew Academy about something so freakishly, outlandishly, (laughs) mind-bogglingly stupid that we just had to talk about it because it is a Herculean effort where he brewed for 99 weeks straight. Yeah, man, it's it's something that we wouldn't even try, and I thought we were as stupid as it gets. But now, of course, we have to have a message from our sponsors before we get there. And we'll be right back, so please stick around. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Thanks for sticking around, and thanks for making this show possible. Before we get into the beery stuff, we got a few announcements. And, of course, if you haven't checked your podcast feed just before we took a little hiatus here before the holidays, I had a great episode where I talked to Lee Lord of Narragansett Brewery about what she did in order to make a retro throwback but yet modern porter. Uh, so go give that a listen, and we'll talk a little bit more about that beer in a moment. But, yeah. Go, go listen to Lee and her thoughts on making Porter. And if you're in Providence, make sure you go stop by her brewery and say hi, neighbor. <laughs> yeah, man, I wish I had the chance. And I want to let you know about a beer competition that's coming up that you guys can enter. Uh, my club, the Cascade Brewers Society of Eugene, Oregon, puts on the KLCC Homebrew Competition this year. Uh, our local public radio station, KLCC, puts on a Big brew fest every year, and for quite a number of years, uh, the club has been running a competition in uh, in conjunction with that. Uh, the registration is currently open. We will post a link to that on our website so that you guys can enter your beer and win some of the fabulous prizes they're giving out. And one of them is, <laughs> I don't know if I consider it fabulous, but uh, 
We want to have the best of show winner here on the podcast to talk to you about their beer and what it took to make it. So that is just one thing that you can uh, win from the competition. They're also going to have an award ceremony for first place winners during the Brewfest. And then a little bit after that, they're going to have a live streaming awards ceremony for all the winners so you'll be able to see that too that's the klcc homebrew competition put on by the cascade brewers society you can enter through january 28th at 4 p.m the link is on our website Uh, i'll tell you right now it's klcchomebrewcomp.com that's pretty easy uh so anyway enter win some fabulous prizes come on the podcast and talk to us Woohoo! everybody wants to talk to us (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, man. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Yeah, well, we don't know yet. Uh, if you have ideas for a charitable cause that we can all contribute to this next six months, please write us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and let us know. We uh, generally like things that support kids or animals. So uh, if you have something in those lines, send us an email. Uh, leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL, or you can even send a text there. Give us your ideas for a new charity. And uh, in the meantime, I'm going to total up how much we got in the last six months for the Pongo Fund. <laughs> send that out to them and let you all know the next time around. Woo-hoo! Charity is good. Charity but now, is good. even better, is beer. Yeah, I guess so. We're going to head over to the pub, have a couple beers, and tell you all about them while we discuss the beer news. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. Or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental and let's give back together.
Welcome back, everybody. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere, somewhere out there in cyberspace, and we're having a couple beers. So, Drew, what are you having today? I'm having some Narragansett Porter, because Lee was very kind and actually got some shipped off to me. Oh, you lucky guy, you. Yeah. So, if you remember, go back and listen to that episode of The Brew Files, as I tell you a little bit about this beer. This came in at a little over 5%, and it is a kind of a throwback porter formulated around the porters of 1820-1830, uh, except for a little bit lower in gravity, so about 5%, or 5.5%. And I, what I thought was the most interesting part in talking to Lee was that she did all of this beer without really using any sort of black malt in it. You know, I think she said she used the little black malt as insurance, but the fundamental aspects of the beer come from that sort of triumvirate mixture of pale brown and uh, amber malt and i will tell you what i mean i've done a beer like that before and of course it was pretty horrid and that's the reason why i never did it again <laughs> unsurprisingly lee's porter is scads and scads and scads better than what mine was and it hits all of that hallmark of being chocolatey again surprising with the malts that she used and just enough hoppiness there to really kind of hang everything together. And really enough flavor to be interesting, but not so much to be overwhelming. And I, Sounds I know, great. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a quaffing beer, but it's a quaffing dark beer that actually has some body to it. So if you get a chance, I cannot highly recommend enough that you go grab yourself some Narragansett Porter. And if you're in the mood for something bigger and dumber, you can also grab some of Lee's Big Dumb Stout, a 12% Imperial Stout, oh, in cans. Ouch. Yeah. Wow. But, yeah. The thing, I, the thing that absolutely amuses me about this is it's a 12% stout in a 16-ounce tall boy can. Yow. <laughs> <laughs> sharing size, as they say. Yeah, sharing, or at least you know maybe like a nice long hour beer or two-hour beer. Really, that would be a three-hour beer for me and then a nap. <laughs> well, and then speaking of uh, three-hour beers and naps, what did you have? Uh, I'm having a Block 15 Alt. Uh, we've talked about Block 15 before out of Corvallis, Oregon. But uh, usually in context of their IPA, Sticky Hands, which is stunningly good, huh? Oh, yeah. That's an amazing beer. Yeah, it is. Uh, but... They make also amazing German and Belgian-style beers, uh, in spite of being known primarily as an IPA brewery. And their alt beer took gold at GABF last September. I've been looking for it, and I finally ran across it. So uh, I, I popped the top, poured it out, smelled great. You know, uh, there was... An, enough malt there, you could smell it. There was kind of like an herbal uh, hop aroma. This is a 5% beer, right? So there, are, it's not loaded up on ingredients. So I had not really known if I was going to be getting much, you know, aroma perception out of it. And sure enough, it did. Uh, I took the first sip when it was fresh out of the fridge. And at first, it seemed maybe like a, a bit thin-bodied to me, and it was all about the bitterness. It's, it's a Dusseldorf-style alt, so it has a real firm, assertive bitterness to it. 
Uh, I set the beer down, went back to it in about 10 minutes, and oh my goodness, had it opened up. It was really, really wonderful. There was a, a nice malt flavor to it. Uh, again, this is made in the, um, in the mold of uh, Zumerga. So, uh, you know, there's like not a lot of Munich malt in it that I could detect. Uh, Zumerga is mainly like, you know, it has a lot of crystal to it in spite of the fact that it's a very dry beer. Um, and this really reminded me of it in that respect. Uh, exceptionally dry, uh, plenty of bitterness to balance it out, but it, it wasn't all about the bitterness. Uh, all in all, it was just a, a beautiful beer, well-balanced, a style that you don't see very often, and uh, one that I wish that you did see more often. Well, and as I've often said in the past, when I was first starting to come up in craft brewing in 1994-ish or so, you saw a lot more alts or things that were altish that weren't necessarily called alt. And by the way, listeners, he wasn't kidding about the fact that he was excited to see it because he messaged me when he found it. <laughs> That's right. Literally like, yeah. dude, I got it. I got it. <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, again, for a brewery that isn't really known for the, anything besides their IPAs, you know, although they should be, um, I, was just dying to get my hands on it because everything they make at Block 15 is so good. And that had the validation of a GABF gold medal. So uh, I was very excited. <laughs> well, and I think we've talked about it before that it's, yeah, it's not what I would expect from Block 15, given that, you know, the primary thing I know them for is sticky hands, but it's always good to see that they have range. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. Okay, and from the beers that we're having now, let's talk about the beers of Christmas past. Or something <laughs> like that. And you got to have your annual beer tasting at the Stuffed Sandwich. I'm always I, so jealous of that. I did. And, of course, listeners will know that I I am a, a huge devotee of Marlene and the Stuffed Sandwich. And I love the fact that it's actually... Still a thing that we get to do. It's been going on now since like 1991, 1992. I started to do the tasting in about 2000, 2002, thereabouts. So going on 20 years now. Uh, and Marlene put together her usual sort of fantastic list, including uh, it had 11 different things to taste, but one of those 11 slots was actually four beers. And um, it was... I think in part, remember we've talked about the sort of decline in terms of imports and, you know, kind of classical beers coming over. And I think some of this list reflected it because it was largely U.S. based, uh, where in years past, you know, like when the Shelton Brothers was still a thing, we had beers from like Norway and Finland and all over the, all over the Europe. Um, they did have, uh, Marlene did make sure to throw in at least one uh, Saison for me, the Blaugies Noel, which was unsurprisingly oh. my favorite beer. Yeah, I can imagine, man. That sounds just great. Um, but she also included things in there like a 2008 Avery Grand Cru, the the Beast. You know, the, that, that big beer. Oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah, sure. And I'll tell you yeah. what, mellowed out in its old age. Um, but to me, the thing that was the highlight and part of the reason that you go to the stuffed sandwich was the special tasting. So the way she always break does it, we break the list into half. 
And the first half is all the all, all the beers that we taste. Then we take a, a break for you know 15 minutes or so to rest your palate and allow people to go take care of business. Um, although some people are very stupid and go and get another beer. Um, but after we get back from the break, she serves us a vertical. And in years past, she used to do this thing where it was like, oh, you know, here you go. Here's Saison uh, DuPont from these three years. Last couple of years, she started to you know, really try and put us to our paces and has started labeling it out so that it's here's a mystery beer times three or in this case, four. Give me the beer, the brewery, the country and the style. And the club has never gotten this right. And so, you know, we've got, we've gotten at least the style. Uh, but this year, uh, it was four different years, and it was a 2016, a 2009, a 1997, and a 1988. And we had all four of those beers. So think about that. All the way back to 88. And my job during the stuffed sandwich tasting is very much like what I do here. I talk, and I explain, and I ask people questions, and I give my opinions, right? Shocker. And the whole time I'm leading the discussion on people, like, where do, you, where do you guys think this is from? Does anybody have any thoughts about the style? Does, you know, what are you tasting? And I mean, this was a big and boozy beer with a lot of richness to it and everything else. And I had a lot of people guessing it was like a quad or it was like some sort of English old ale. And at one point I said to the crowd, I said, you know, I can't help but shake the idea that this is Sammy Claus. Right? Yeah. And because, you know, hey, what's been brewed for that long you know all the way back to 88 at least and what's big and and all that sort of stuff and i just said i think this is Santa claus and i got shouted down by the crowd including by somebody who said oh i just had the 2016 Santa claus and it didn't taste like this and i was like all right well there you go and so marlene came back and as with all people who do a blind tasting she had a a very smug i know the answers look on her face <laughs> um Asked everybody what it was, and I think the crowd had said, uh, we think it's a, some sort of English old ale, like a Lee's or a Harvey's or, or something like that. And she was like, no, it's Sammy Claus. <laughs> and I looked at that crowd, and I was like, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Never doubt me again. <laughs> Fools. But... There's only one place, or actually maybe two places in the world, because I would also say you could probably do this at the Culminator in Antwerp. Uh, but there are really a very, very, very few places in the world where you can have a tasting that includes four different years of Sammy Claus from across the decades. And so wow. that's the reason why I love going to the Stuffed Sandwich. So go to the Stuffed Sandwich in San Gabriel, California. If you go there, message me on, on Facebook. Maybe I'll come join you for a beer. Uh, maybe I'll hop a plane and come down. That is that is such a cool little place, man. The, the beer is, I mean, the selection is unreal, what she's got there. And the sandwiches don't suck either. Oh, no, the sandwiches are great. And, of course, Marlena's hostess is fantastic. I still intend to grab her on this podcast and get her to tell the, the whole story of her and Sam and the sandwich. That'd be really cool, man. Yep. All right, and then for you, you had a, a maybe not something nearly as outre as a 88 Santa Claus, but you had quite a selection of beers over New Year's and, and Christmas. 
Yeah, I still have a few left. Uh, as I've mentioned several times, when I have uh, the same beer over and over again here in the pub, I haven't been getting out a lot to uh, to buy uh, beers. We have a great store here in Eugene called the Beer Stein that I like to go to. Um, but I did. Uh, so I, I kind of went down there and stocked up for both Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So uh, I, I had a, a real selection. Uh, Christmas Eve, I went through the St. Bernardus Christmas Ale, which was just absolutely delightful. I kind of have this tradition on uh, Christmas Eve in the afternoon after all the chores are done, uh, packages wrapped, uh, dinner started, all that kind of stuff. I'll sit down with a strong Christmas beer. Uh, used to be uh, Scaldus Noel, but I haven't seen that in years. So this year it was the St. Bernardus Christmas beer. Uh, I don't think they spice this one, although it did have a very very, very slight hint of maybe cinnamon to it, but I don't think there's actually cinnamon in it. I think that that's just uh, yeast. From, from Yeah, yeast or the ingredients or whatever. Um, I, uh, I broke out a bottle of McShoof, the Scotch Ale version of Shoof. Uh, that was very nice. Hadn't had one of those for years. Uh, moved on to a St. Bernardus Triple um, and Wow, that that is a really nice triple. Uh, I've also had recently uh, the Westmall triple, which is my favorite beer in the world, and the uh, the Roquefort uh, triple extra, and the Saint Bernardus. Um, it is different from those, although I believe it uses the same yeast as Westmall. Uh, it didn't seem quite as dry to me, but still delicious. And uh, finished up the evening with a North Coast. Old Stock Ale, uh, a current one from 2022. Uh, over the course of Christmas, I had a chance to uh, break out a uh, 2017, a 2021, and a 2022 to compare them. Not not multi-decades like Drew had, but, uh, you know, over a course of years. Um, the, the beer is amazing. Um, the 2017 version confirmed to me that it really starts getting good about five years in, and I've managed to keep some around for as long as 10 or 12 years, not at the moment. And I would encourage you to go out, buy a bunch of the 2022, put half of it away, and drink one every few years to try it. Because let me tell you, by the time it gets to 10 years or so, it is a really, really amazing beer, which is not to say that fresh, it's bad. So, in your mind, when you're tasting it, what changes? The flavors come together, right? The 2022, the the bitterness was more forward, uh, and the malt base seemed a little bit thinner to it. I mean, of course, you know, you have to take into account that there may be uh, early changes in the ingredients they use to brew it. Uh, you know, even Sierra Nevada Celebration, which uh, is exactly the same recipe every year, it's an agricultural product, so the ingredients are going to change somewhat. But in general, as it ages, uh, the malt uh, becomes a little rounder and fuller, and the bitterness recedes a bit, uh, not to the point where it ever gets cloying, though. There you go. Well, that's always nice. And yeah, I think Sierra Nevada Celebration, back when we used to age it as a club, seemed to like everybody was really satisfied when it was about six or five or six years old. Yeah, right. Um, 
Bigfoot falls about in the in the old stock range at about a decade, mm-hmm. and then uh, they they sort of turn after that. But it's always nice to see that being done. But yeah, I had I had an old stock at one point during the holiday, and damn, if that's not a good beer. Yeah, it's it's a really excellent beer, and it's one that not a lot of people know about. I mean, honestly, I think outside of uh, Old Rasputin, a lot of people kind of forget about North Coast. You know what? And right now in my beer fridge, I have the Old Stock, I have Old Rasputin, and uh, I have Prankster. They're, uh, they're light-colored, uh, kind of triple-ish Belgian blonde ale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was surprised because I probably have more beer, more variety, you know, uh, from North Coast in my beer fridge right now than from any other brewery. Yeah. And then you toss in Scrimshaw on top of that. And yep. North Coast is just one of those breweries that's been quietly chugging along. Yeah, really, really under the radar, huh? Yep. And for New Year's Eve, <laughs> now that I've taken half an hour describing Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, I broke out uh, an Oublon Schoof. That is their Belgian IPA that I just adore. Uh, also, I had a Delirium Tremens and a 2017 Old Stock. So I, I took it a little bit easier there because uh, after Christmas Eve, I was kind of hurting. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. yeah, I think I think here on New Year's Eve I had what did I had I had a, a martini and I had I had that uh, jubilee you sent me. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then I hunkered down and waited for the fireworks that never came because thankfully it was raining. <laughs> yeah, it was raining and, here too. And for everybody who's listening, as we're recording this, it's the aftermath of the Rose Bowl parade in my area. And so uh, uh, things are nice and quiet, and I love it. Yeah, right. So now, uh, so in spite of all the beers we've been drinking, it sounds like there's been some breweries in L.A. that closed. Uh, a lot of people won't be familiar with these, but, you know, let, let's yeah. run them through quickly, and then maybe next time we can talk about the 22 in Oregon that closed. Right, and so this is part of the reason why I wanted to bring this up, because you've, yeah, you have 22 in Oregon that closed. These are the ones that I can think of that closed in L.A., and I just wanted to mention these because – this is kind of a trend right now, and hopefully it's going to stabilize in the next year. But I think between COVID and inflation and a couple of other things going on in the industry, including possibly saturation, we're going to see a little bit more of this uh, going on. And to give you an idea, like some of these people are people that we've had on the podcast in the, pa- in the past. Like uh, Kevin Osborne was uh, forced to close down uh, Celador, uh, although actually they, at the last minute they they ended up closing the tap room. And instead of shutting down the company completely, he transferred ownership to a new owner who is now going to be working out of Smog City. So Cellador uh, will no longer have sort of an independent taproom facility. They never brewed their own beer, right? They always grabbed wort from other people and then gave it the mixed, ferment, the mixed culture fermentation treatment. So they're going to continue to do that. Just now all their operations will be consolidated out of, uh, out of Smog City. And again, it sort of pretends some problems, I think, like we were talking with Rare Barrel, about the whole mixed culture world right now. Uh, also very interesting, one of L.A.'s most hyped breweries, at least in terms of you know, really running with the hype when Hazy's first hit and people could charge outrageous amounts of money per four-pack, uh, Mumford closed. And they, they, they always had a really good brewery, but... A really terrible location right in the middle of Skid Row, and you had to 
kind of step over uh, drug addicts in order to get into their front door. Um, King Harbor, which was a big one here in L.A., down in Redondo Beach in the South Area, suddenly just announced that they were closing all three of their locations, like overnight. Wow. Gone. Yep. Uh, Anacapa, the oldest brewery over in Ventura, had closed. Uh, They're reopening as something else. But also we've seen other people close recently, like Liberation and Five Threads, both of whom have been on the podcast. And our two local cast specialists have also sort of either closed or undergone some sort of tectonic shift where Yorkshire Square, who I had interviewed then head brewer Andy Black, uh, they are, they've, the ownership's changed. Supposedly they're going to keep a cast focus, but now they're part of the Project Barley, which will now be up to three locations. And McLeod's, which has been the oldest cask specialist here in Southern California, they suddenly uh, one night on Instagram announced that they were closing both locations, including their brand new joint that they had literally opened up like three weeks before. And they said, we're closed. We're going to be open until Friday to sell through beer, and that's it. And because of the outpouring of support in the community and a bunch of other behind-the-scenes shenanigans going on, shall we say, they've managed to keep both op- both locations open. I don't know if they've resumed brewing yet, though. Uh, so it's a really tumultuous time, and I thought I would just give the little snapshot of what's happening here in L.A. to say this is what's going on. Don't be surprised if it's also happening around you. And hopefully over this next year we'll kind of stabilize and get back, if not to growth, at least sort of stasis. You know what, man? I'm making no predictions whatsoever. Oh, and me either. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And it could be anything, huh? It could be. But, again, I thought that was interesting. And kind of a couple of these literally just before New Year's hit. So... We'll see, but this also says, hey, don't forget, go out, support your local homebrew shops and your local breweries, and keep everybody uh, happy. Yep, that's right. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's go to brewing. All righty, we're going to head over to the brewery, tell you what we've been doing, what we hope to be doing. We'll be right back, so stick around. The Y-East yeast strains that spurred the craft beer revolution four decades ago are still among brewmasters' favorites today. That's why we handpicked our most popular strains used in some of the best craft beers today to feature alongside our private collection release. The new Legacy Curation showcases 2124 Bohemian Lager, known for being one of the most versatile lager strains in the world and equally suitable for cold IPAs and Italian Pilsners. For a classic German Kolsch or experimental pseudo-lager, the 2565 Kolsch strain is proven to produce the best qualities of ales and lagers in a wide temperature range. Complementing these strains are 2272PC North American Lager and 2352PC Munich Lager II for the winter season. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and recipes. Let's get brewing. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. You all know I'm standing in my brewery because I can hear things fermenting. And it's time to talk about what we're going to be fermenting either right now or what we're planning on. And Denny, you had mentioned drinking some Oublon Shoof up front. We'd already talked about me drinking your hobbling shoes, but apparently tasting Oublon Shoof again gave you some thoughts. Yeah, it did, um, cause especially because I'm getting ready to uh, brew another batch of that. As soon as I get a chance to brew, that's the next one up. Um, and my first thought, I mean, you know, when we were discussing my version of it, you mentioned that uh, it didn't seem to have as much uh, hot presence up front in terms of flavor and aroma as you would expect. And I agreed with that. And uh, having having a real Oublon now, um, I can tell that that's exactly what my beer was lacking. Uh, there was just a huge Amarillo flavor and aroma in that beer. And... Uh, so in order to try and maybe hopefully get that, uh, I'm going to uh, double the dry hop addition from two ounces to four, and two of those four ounces are going to be Amarillo Cryo. So <laughs> we'll we'll see if I can uh, can approximate it a little bit more closely. I love the version I made, uh, and if you didn't have the Oublon right there to compare it to, you would think that it was darn close. I would say it's close enough so that you can at least realize what I was going for. So two ounces of regular Amarillo, two ounces of Amarillo cryo. Right. Which effectively means six ounces of Amarillo. Well, uh, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So yeah. anyway, uh, we'll see. And I will, I will send some of this new batch down to you too. If I ever get a chance to get it brewed, it's been on the, it's like, I'm going to brew this for like two weeks now and other things keep popping up. So hopefully, uh, sometime in the next week I can get to it and get some down to you and we can talk about the changes. It's the way of the world. Yes, um, it is. Particularly during the holidays, everybody. Everybody laughs, but you know, for a guy who is as online as I am during the holidays, I sort of disappear. <laughs> so, yeah, man. It's it's my annual uh, internet diet. Okay. Um, all right, and then that's what you're doing. I wanted to talk a little bit, just briefly, about uh, what I'm planning on doing. We got NHC coming into San Diego this year, so or sorry, HomebrewCon. Always forget they changed the name. HomebrewCon is going to San Diego this year. The town and country be there in June. There'll be a grand grand party. And, of course, one of the things I wanted to think about was 
what can the Falcons do to, you know, really sort of make a special presence, right? And that will be when the club is roughly 49 and a half. Would have been even better if they had done San Diego next year so we could have had like an actual 50th sort of uh, birthday party there. But we'll be 49 and a half, so we're going to treat it like Disney, and we're going to have a 50th anniversary for 18 months. Um, And my thought on what to do for the NHC was to go and gather up a bunch of classic Falcons recipes, things the club is known for. So things like the Falcons Claws, for instance, which we've talked about here on the show before, Doug Weiser, a whole bunch of other beers that if you're in the Southern California area and you know uh, the Falcons, you kind of expect us to either have or somebody to have made. And so we're going to present a sort of a classic booth of Falcons classics along with new additions. And I can't wait to actually get this project going because the real hard part for me is going to be, okay, identifying the 12 beers that we want to do and then finding the different teams of brewers and, and actually kind of staying on point on them to go, please brew this. Go. Where is it? I've got to break out my project manager hat. Anybody, anybody uh, safe compliant? Can they, can they come help me uh, project manage? <laughs> That's a really cool idea though, man. Yeah, I mean, I figured, you know, we're the only ones who are going to be 50, so might as well have some fun with it. So you're um, going to remake the clam chowder saison? I joked about it, but I think uh, I think in reality <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make the uh, the citrus saison. Oh, okay. Which is its close cousin, but minus the clam juice. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought that was fun. Uh, and if you guys have any ideas about that or if you guys have any tips or tricks about how to manage, you know, a whole crew of – independent homebrewers, let me know. Um, And then, of course, it can't be the New Year's without us talking about some resolutions of things to do. I just wanted to throw out there that we've been talking about non-alcoholic and low-alcoholic beers on the podcast uh, for a while. That market's obviously increasing. I've talked to a couple of people who have done homebrew versions, that sort of stuff, but I have never actually made one on my own. So I figured that one of my goals for this year would be to go ahead and actually produce a non-alcoholic beer and a low-alcoholic beer, right? So either under 0.5 for the non-alcoholic and under, I think it's one or two for the low-alcohol, regardless. Because I think they're both interesting challenges. The low-alcohol one is more traditional brewing, uh, but the non-alcohol one involves playing around with some different critters and some different techniques to try and figure out how to make something that is beer minus the booze. So I'm going to be real interested to see how this goes. I am too. I, like I'm not predicting that I'm going to have great success, uh, obviously because I think it's a very tough nut to crack. But I've, I, I figure I got to try, um, and I suspect I'll have more success with the low alcohol version. Um, and then the other thing I also want to do is uh, some alternative fermentation projects, and by that I mean I want to make lacto pickles. You know, I've considered I've, that, but uh, just have never gotten motivated to give it a try. I know. I mean, I've made sauerkraut before, but and I like a good fermented pickle, but I've never actually made them. So it's time to make one. I and mean, it's not that hard, right? No, it's maybe it's not. It just <laughs> yeah. Tell me after you've tried it. <laughs> Please, I'm not going to try and kill myself, but I do want to actually try to do that. If anybody has uh, recommendations for resources for that. I have uh, Sandor Katz's uh, The Art of Fermentation uh, as a resource. Uh, let me know that, too. So I'm going to try some non-alcoholic and low-alcoholic beer-making projects 
along with making some damn pickles. I'll send you beer. You can send me pickles. Uh, as you like, buddy. <laughs> works for me, man. I, I can make my own damn beer. Uh, all right. And then, of course, uh, Denny, I think you have a very simple New Year's resolution. Yeah, I, I'm just going to brew whatever I feel like. <laughs> you know, okay. uh, if, uh, my it, it's I have this theory of uh, beer competitions. Uh, if you don't enter, you can't lose. And uh, that, I'm kind of the same thing with resolutions. If you don't make any, you don't have to worry about breaking them. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just going to resolve to do my best to be a good person and brew as much as I can when it works out okay. So how's that? <laughs> I think that's fine, and you may actually succeed. <laughs> yeah, well, at least it's a realistic goal. I, you know, in Pearls Before Swine today, uh, Pig said that his uh, goal for the next year was not to get any fatter than he has to. And, uh, uh, maybe I'll th- toss that one in on mine, too. There we go. All right. Well, that's enough brewing. Obviously, if you have feedback on the stuff that we're brewing or our ideas, and I think that's mostly directed at me. Denny's got a fairly easy one this time. Uh, send us email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and we will make sure to follow your advice. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Okay, stick around. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be over in the lounge talking to Martin Keene, who undertook something that I know that I certainly wouldn't ever do. This would never be one of my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll be right back. The ultimate all-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com.
a few months back, I was invited to be on a podcast uh, by a guy named Martin Keene, who uh, does a thing he calls the Homebrew Challenge, where he uh, one of well, one of the things he does in the Homebrew Challenge is he takes uh, other people's recipes and brews them, and then uh, they discuss how close it came out. He had uh, brewed a batch of my Nick Danger Porter, which uh, actually was very, very tasty, uh, and sent it to me. So we talked about that, and he also talked about another project that he had done, which was brewing 99 different beer styles in 99 weeks. (laughs) And that was impressive enough and crazy enough so that we just thought that we had to talk to him. (laughs) And here we go. We're talking today to Mr. Martin Keene, who uh, has his own podcast and does some wild and wacky things that even Drew and I would never think of. Uh, Martin, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate you having me on. So, uh, Martin, tell people a little bit about yourself and how you got into homebrewing. Yeah, so... um I, I run the YouTube channel, The Homebrew Challenge, and I have been brewing for a few years now. How I got into this crazy world of homebrewing is, I think like many people, I got bought a Mr. Beer kit, and I tried my best to use the gloop that comes with Mr. Beer to make beer. <laughs> um, I made a pale ale first that tasted of apples. It was not supposed to. Um, and then the second beer didn't even ferment, which is, I've never managed to do that since. Oh, uh, Good. <laughs> but this, these were the days before they told you about Starsan. So I had no idea that there was there was this idea that you don't just, you know, use bleach to clean out your fermenter and then you pour the stuff in and you're done. And there was no boil either with Mr. Beer. Uh, so it wasn't <laughs> a very successful, successful introduction. And then um, I had a friend who brewed at home and had him come over and show me how to do it. And we that time we did it properly uh, over the stove and using liquid malt extract and he did tell me about this thing called star sand and keeping things sanitary and stuff like that. And, uh, ended up brewing a beer that was at least to my palate at the time, absolutely delicious. And from then on completely hooked. <laughs> that's all it takes, isn't it, man? Just that one good one. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, man. You're, you're successful. Uh, and then you think, oh, I can do anything now. But, uh, what we really want to talk to you about today is this crazy task you took on of brewing 99 beers in 99 weeks i mean i mean new homebrewers often jump from style to style you know while they're learning about beer and and enjoying the fact that they can actually make it but what in the world made you decide to do something like that i have no answer to that question why i (laughs) what on earth yeah so, I mean, really, this this came um, came about for two reasons. One is I was just like really in a brewing rut because there are a few beer styles I really enjoy. So I would just brew them on a loop. So I'd be doing a Best Bitter and then I'd be doing a Belgian Triple. Then I'd be doing a Pale Ale. Then I'd be doing an IPA. Then back to the Best Bitter and just kind of on a loop like that <laughs> over and over again. And uh, that sort of got me thinking, well, you know, what other styles should I be looking at? Um, and... At the time, I was really doing a lot of brewing from uh, Brewer's Best extract kits uh, at first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they only have so many of those in the homebrew store. So I, I got through all of those, picked my favorite styles from those, and then moved to all grain and started to do, to do that. So, so one of the reasons for picking 99 beers was, well, 
I'll start brewing some BSRs I haven't done before. Uh, the second reason was I did have a little YouTube channel at the time called Homebrew How To, which was a really terrible idea. But but the concept was, <laughs> as I was learning to do all grain brewing with myself and a buddy, we thought we'll brew, we'll put the videos up online, and uh, we'll see what people think. And the huge mistake was calling it Homebrew How To because that implied some some competence of which there was very little. So we, we would put stuff out there and get absolutely burned in the comments, murdered in the comments for, for things that we were doing. And actually, it was hugely helpful. Like, imagine having all of these experienced homebrewers giving you feedback specifically on your own brew day. Like, if, if you don't mind being called an idiot 10 ways to Sunday, and you can get past that and just get to the comments. We learned so much from that. So um, so I wanted to tr transition from that homebrew how-to with all of these kind of toxic comments about how bad we were at brewing, take everything they've done, start a new channel uh, called the Homebrew Challenge, and then try to figure out what that challenge would be. And, and, and yeah, the challenge ended up being I, I looked at the BJCP guidelines and it's like, you know what? There's 99 different beer styles here. Let's do that. Let's do 99 beers. And then I was thinking, well, I'll do one a month like I was I was brewing up until that point. And then realized that 99 months is a very long time and there's absolutely no way I'd still be doing it by then. So uh, it's like, right, I guess it has to be every week then. And uh, and so it began. Oh, man. And you did them in order, right? So the first one you brewed was an American white lager. That's right. So I, so the, the whole idea was start in order. So start 1A, American light lager, 1B, American lager and so forth. Um, which also kind of seemed like a good idea at the time and wasn't because because the way that the categories uh, are grouped, you know, obviously they're related styles. So I was just brewing lagers and European lagers primarily for like the first few months. And then I would get finally to British beers and I would do nothing but British beers for three months. And then my favorite style are probably the Belgian beers and they were at the end, so it was a two-year wait. Oh, so, so, oh bummer. So, right. So, so if you came to, to my basement brewery, and I've got four taps here that you know always had beer while I was working through this challenge, you know, I'd give imagine. you a choice of you, – you'd have a choice of Czech pale lager on tap one or Czech premium pale lager or Czech amber lager or Czech dark lager. Those would be your choices, you know, <laughs> because it was just the same – related groups of beers you know all together so from right. that perspective it, it was a little bit uh lacking in in differentiation a little bit but it also sort of really helped you dial in the standards a little bit because once you st started to learn what makes a good czech beer then you could apply that to some of the the other styles as well so drew and i always say the best way to learn about brewing is to brew so uh, did you uh, feel like this was a great learning experience for you? After after two years, did you feel like you were a better brewer than you were when you started? Oh, there's, yeah, there's, there's no question that going through all of this, you learn a huge amount, um, particularly with process and efficiency type things, like getting a brew day done quicker. I, that became my absolute focus. Like when, when you <laughs> – yeah. When you have a beer to brew every week and a video put to put together about it, oh, and that week also you've got another beer in the fermenter which needs to be packaged, and you need to shoot a, a, a tasting segment of one of your other beers that you did four weeks ago. Like every bit of efficiency I could find 
became to the absolute focus. So I got quite good at, at figuring out the things that I thought mattered in my beers and the things that didn't matter. Um, I also got to to learn such a wide variety of brewing styles. So learning that, you know, the difference between a lager and an ale is, is obvious, but, you know, how to, to perform souring and different methods to do that, kettle souring and stuff like that, overnight mashes, uh, all, all sorts of things like that. So from that perspective, it was a very good learning experience. From the perspective of brewing a really good beer, like how do I now brew my best Doppelbock? Well, I only brewed one. So I, I would go to a style, I would brew it, I'd taste the results and then never visit it again, which is not ideal. And look, Denny, I know that's not something you do. You, you'll take a recipe and you'll, you'll kind of go over it over and over again and make sure it's, you know, it's improved. And I'm just doing these one shot onto the next one. So where did you get the recipes for all these 99 beers? Yeah, so the recipes were all my recipes. Um, so the way that I would do that is I would take a look and just sort of see what's out there already, uh, you know, just online. So looking at craft beer um, and brewing magazine was like a really good one because they had a description of every style and what would go into it. Quite a few other websites that would really describe the style and the characteristic ingredients. Um, and then I would use that to, to put together my recipe and I put them together in batches of four or five so I could send them to the homebrew store and pick them up once a month. Um, yeah, so it was really just a case of kind of researching them. And uh, at first I was trying to do things a bit clever. Like I think I'd used Marisata or something in an American wheat beer or something crazy like that. Just because <laughs> some of the guides were like, you know, you could actually do that if you want a bit of a slight biscuit crunch to your wheat beer or stuff like that. And then, you know, people were like, what the hell are you doing? Let's, tr let's try to stick to characteristic ingredients for each style. So um, as things progressed, I made sure to use English malts in English beers and German malts and German beers and so forth. But, um, yeah, they were, they're all my own recipes that I would come up with. Well, you know, if it's a beer style that you're not real familiar with and it's your first time brewing it, seems to me that I mean, at least my theory is you want you want to stick close to the norm, you know, uh, le learn what's going on before you start screwing around with it. Right, exactly. So um, just yeah, and I think the thing that made this sort of really interesting is some of the beer styles that I was designing recipes for. I'd never tasted them before. I'd never had. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I'd never had a, an old ale before or, um, you know, I'd, I'd never brewed a beer de garde. I don't know what's goes in that. So it was probably wiser to sort of stick with more, the more traditional ingredients rather than, you know, going to down some advanced routes when I'd never even tried the beer style before. <laughs> yeah, right. So, Drew, what do you think? Is this something that you would try? It seems crazy enough for you. It does seem crazy enough for me, but of course I would also be the kind of guy who'd be like, you know, I could do this over 99 months. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But the crazy part to me is the timing. Um, but I, I have to ask, so you said, you know, you found yourself in a rut, like you were brewing bitters and, and that sort of thing. Going through this project, was there a beer style that surprised you just how much you liked it when you got to the other side of it that you weren't expecting? Yeah, there were a bunch, you know, when you're going in and some of these beer styles I've literally never heard of. Um, so Eisbock, you know, that ice beer was, uh, oh, right. was a real favorite because that one, um, you, you basically brew a Doppelbock and then you freeze distill it. So, you, so I brewed it, 
put it into the keg. It's already quite high alcohol at this point, you know, seven, eight percent ABV. And then you freeze it. And what the freezing does is it separates the alcohol from the water. So um, you're just basically distilling it down so it becomes stronger. And then you're supposed to leave it for between three to five years is the recommendation. <laughs> well, fortunately, the thing with the icebox was it was fairly early on in the challenge. I think it's um, yeah, style 9B. So that was quite early on. And then I was able to try that at the end. I was like, wow, this actually has really changed. It sort of developed support like characters and was, was really good. So that was a good one. Alt beer was um, a, another good one that I hadn't really had before uh, that was quite nice and then some of the some of the sour beers were a pleasant surprise as well i wasn't really sure how well kettle soured beers would come out but some of those were great and then in the stouts section i learned a lot about stouts i mean one of my kind of inner rut beers was irish dry stout i'd basically be trying to clone guinness over and over and said on nitrogen and whatnot but i had no idea that there were things like tropical stout and what tropical stout was and actually how delicious that was so yeah it, it was a real eye-opening experience so did your equipment setup uh, evolve as you went through this it did it did so i i started out with a blickman brew easy setup which was uh basically a 20 gallon kettle and then a 15 gallon kettle that sits on top of that with a pump between the two so recirculates between those two vessels and um, it's designed to brew 10 gallon batches which I realized pretty early on was not going to work if I was brewing every week <laughs> 10 gallons of beer really? every week so I, I you can sort of hack it a little bit and for, as long as the beer is not too low in OG you could do 5 gallon batches in it but it really didn't like doing that uh, so I ended up switching that out for a, a brow supply, Unibrow system, which was much better at five-gallon mm -hmm. batches. Um, but then it got to the stage where I was like, well, even five gallons is an awful lot of beer every week to find a home for. So I ended up moving down to three-gallon batch sizes. And at that point, I moved to my third brewing system, which was the Clawhammer Supply System, which is what I ended up doing the majority of the beers on. And it's the, the system I still use now. And uh, that I just found super efficient at doing what I needed to do. And it didn't mind if I brewed a half size batch, you know, two and a half or three gallons. Everything still worked the same, unlike the brew easy. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's what I used. And then on the fermenter side, I kind of started out with uh, you know, plastic buckets and the SS Brutech buckets uh, and, and ended up by the end of it with a, a flashy glycol set up with spike conical fermenters and uh, uh you know it, it definitely sort of upped my game but right up front i was just using for temperature control i just used chest freezers and i had five chest freezers at one point in my unfinished oh basement my God. that had various beers you know in various stages of fermentation <laughs> or in kegs or conditioning or whatever uh, so switching to glycol was an absolutely massive uh, a massive saver and i was able to get rid of all those chest freezers most of them. Yeah, Drew and I both use uh, glycol-chilled systems, and, uh, you know, it would just made a major, major difference in my enjoyment of the brewing process. Right, right. There's so many advantages in that you can just 
you, you leave your fermenter out in the open at room temperature and then you can control exactly what the temperature is going to be inside of it. Cold crashing becomes much easier. Um, yeah, it's it's been really totally worth it, totally worth it for me. Right, and if you have several different beers going that need different temperatures, you know, then uh, you can you can do that too with a glycol system a lot more easily than throwing them into a chest freezer. That's right. So I have three fermenters hooked up to my glycol system. They each have their own temperature controller, and uh, one can be fermenting an ale, one can be fermenting a lager, and one can be cold crashing. And uh, yeah, all goes into the same system. It's 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 cool. Um, it was like that. That was probably the piece of equipment that I was most excited for for this whole thing. I mean, that was kind of a benefit of doing this over 99 weeks as people started to come to the YouTube channel and be more interested in it. And then some sponsors were kind of interested in it as well. So, you know, I was able to upgrade from my somewhat cheaper system to some nicer stuff with the help of those sponsors. Um, but the thing that I was most excited about was moving to Glycol. Yeah. All I can say is you're way more efficient about using your three fermenters than I am. <laughs> I go through times when all of mine are are busy and I'm wishing that I had more. And then, unfortunately, the last couple of months, it's uh, been a chore to keep even one going. But, you know, those are the cycles you go through. That's so okay. did you discover any, any favorite ingredients as you were making these beers, like a, a malt or a hop or a yeast that you kind of went, whoa, I'm going to have to uh, keep that in mind to use more in the future? Yeah. Um, the, the homebrew store that, uh, that I worked with and that provided all the ingredients for this is Atlantic Brew Supply. and Oh, um, we know them. Yeah. So they've been great, and they're real close to me, so I could just drive over, and I would send my recipes to them, and they would fulfill them. And it became a bit of a running joke that when they would get my recipes, they would look through it and try to count how many British ingredients I would include in a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I mentioned I use marisata quite a bit. Um, so that would get that would come up a lot, uh, you know, and a lot of the, the English hops, fuggles and stuff, I'd keep finding reasons to, to throw those in. So I did definitely have a preference for some of those. Um, what, what was interesting was kind of the more obscure ingredients that I would get to use. Um, so with the, with the kettle souring, for example, I ended up using a probiotic drink called Good Belly for a couple oh, yeah. of the, the kettle sours. Have you, have you tried that? It's a, uh, I, you know, I don't, I'm not into sours enough to brew them, but I know that that's a real, real popular way to go about it. Yeah. So that was a, that was a, a, a real favorite. And then, um, Got to to pretty near the end. I got to Sati, which is this. I think oh, Finnish style. Finnish. That's right. Finnish. Yeah. Yes. Um, and apparently, you can use like spruce tips and all sorts of stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. They use spruce tips, I think, to uh, to to louder through. Well, it's yeah. juniper, juniper branches to to louder spruce tips for for flavoring and lots of other things. Okay. Of course, lots of different variations because it's an ancient thing. Right, right. So, yeah, so I ended up throwing juniper berries into my mash for, for the sati, which was cool. pretty, pretty unusual. Yeah. But, and did you like the beer? No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. right. I know. See, so that was going to be my question, which was, now that you've done these, or, you know, you've gone through this whole process, you found some things that surprised you that you liked. What did you make that you were like, Nope, never again. Did that once. Done. Yes. 
there were a few. Um, basically, anything smoky, I didn't like. And <laughs> right oh, on, buddy. I'm the same way. Right. I just, I mean, raw beer is is the obvious one. For for the raw beer, I just, I I have only myself to blame for it coming out as bad as it did, because I used. I saw online somewhere that you could use quite a lot of smoked malt in that, uh, up to 95%, one website said. So I was like, right. Depending upon the smoke malt. Ah, well, I didn't, didn't maybe read that part. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'll use 95% of cherrywood smoked malt. And I went mm. to, to Atlantic Brews to try to pick it up. And I needed, yeah, I don't know, like eight, nine pounds of this stuff. Well, they, they bring it out in this tiny little tub for the whole store, and there's like, you know, one and a half pounds in there. And like, no, 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 I'm going to need way more than that. So they go out and they find the sack. That should have been my first clue that that was too much. Yeah, it should have um, <laughs> been a warning. <laughs> should have been a warning. Then I ended up, after I brewed this, looking up, uh, I think it was on the Bryce website, and it was saying, yeah, use up to 30% of, of cherry wood smoke malt. Oh, Any more would be oh. just terrible. So anyway, I, I didn't do any of that. And uh, I basically was just brewing with a bonfire and i put it all in the mash kettle everything in the brewery absolutely stank during the mash during the boil just it really smelled like um you know like a fire really just straight up like a fire and smoke see now Not as an great. avowed roush beer fan i demand that you rebrew it properly oh <laughs> you like this style Drew. i do this is why i'm weird and <laughs> See, and, and for me, I would just assume lick an ashtray if I went that flavor. Yeah. See, if it, it, it tastes like an ashtray, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Good Lord. What percentage of smoked malt might you add into a raw beer? I mean, if you're using, like, say, the Weyermann, uh Beechwood malt, the, the, the actual German Rausch malt, that's where you can go, like, 95%. But even then, that, like, if you're not a, a Rausch beer fan, that might be a bit, bit intense. So, like, I have a Cherrywood Mild that uses that Brees malt, for instance. That is, I think it's about 20% of the, okay. the, the malt mill. Um, and the, the, that's, I mean, the, the cherry wood's a relatively mild smoke. It's not a hard one, like say a hickory, uh, but it's not as soft as the beech wood. And I will, however, say that if it's the peat smoke malt, the right amount of percentage of that to use is zero. Zero. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, man. Indeed. Don't, don't ever go near that stuff. Yeah. So yeah. So so my Ralph beer came out looking like I mean just cloudy, awful brown color. Um, that was one. I think that was the only one where the entire cake was tipped after the little tasting we did. And finish, <laughs> finish the pint. But, I forced this much down. I'll never drink anymore. That's, and then, that's and then right. hopefully you replace the seals and when you clean the keg. That right. That, that was a yeah. Boiling water. Replace all the O rings. Um, but then, then, so I was like, oh, yeah, this, this is, this is going to be the worst one. I don't like smoked beers. This is terrible. But then I get near the end to the historical beer section, and there's a, a sour <laughs> called Lichtenheiner, which is, which is a combination of sour and smoke. Sour and smoke. Oh, my. Um, so we went into that one. Like, oh, my goodness. I don't like smoky beers. Sour beers may be okay, but sour and smoke, that doesn't sound like a good combination. Well, that was one. Where we made it, I was a little bit more careful in how much smoked malt I added. Um, and the first sip is just absolutely shocking. Like, such a shock to the system with those two flavors combined. But by the time you get to the end of that pint, it was actually quite pleasant. So I think, 
if it's done in moderation, perhaps smoky beers can be okay. Perhaps. No, there is no perhaps. <laughs> well, I, I'm not so sure about that. So all of this uh, obviously didn't put you off brewing. You're you're still brewing, right? Yes, I'm still brewing. So I got to the end of the 99 challenge, and then I was like, oh, my goodness, now what? And it got to the stage where I was about two-thirds of the way through it. So there was still, you know, maybe nine months to go. And I was absolutely just so excited to be done so that I could start brewing some other beer stars that I wanted to do that were not on the list or revisit right. stars that I liked. But it got to the end, and then it was like, oh, now I have absolutely no structure anymore. So I started brewing a lot less than I than I was before. And I was back to that, oh, what should I brew now? And I don't think I'd appreciated how wonderful it was to have a list. And you just work through the list one by one. And you know what's coming next week, next month, the month after that. Um, so I don't know. Maybe this freedom is not for me because now I find myself <laughs> brewing a bit less. I, I need rules and structures, man. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Well, but, I mean, to your point, it is actually kind of cool to have, like, a a program, a, a, a guiding ethos, shall we say, even if it's not as insanely structured as 99 beers in 99 weeks. Um, but I have to ask, now that you've, now that you've gone through it, what are you, what are you excited to revisit? Yeah, I wanted to, so, so I really wanted to revisit some of the stars that I did, uh, that I'd never had before and that I liked and that I wanted to tweak. So tropical stout, I would say was one, uh, Irish red ale was another one that I hadn't had much experience with. Um, so I wanted to go back and especially to the earlier styles that I brewed really using the sort of non standard ingredients go back and revisit some of those. And that's what I've been doing, especially a lot of the lagers. I mean, that's kind of a, a funny thing about how the BJCP guidelines are laid out is that almost every beer at the start of the, the program is a lager. And then after you get through, I think, European lager, um, then that's it. There is no more lagers left. So I got, I think style eight is the last or category eight was the last one that had lagers. Mm-hmm. And then, I didn't do a lager. So yeah. I was really excited to go back and do some lagers and then to try, <laughs> you know, I've been hearing a lot about warm fermented lagers and stuff like that. So I would think, well, now I can start to play with the rules a little bit and let's try fermenting this lager yeast at 68 Fahrenheit and see what happens. Um, so yeah, just being able to experiment a bit more has been, has been fun. And, and on a much less frenetic schedule, I would imagine. Right. But, but, that's a blessing and a curse because I'm not brewing as much. And uh, right. uh, I have uh, two of my four taps are empty right now, which is just, yeah, it's not good. It's not good <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm the same way, man. When I go out there and I look at my fermenters and uh, they're empty, it's like, oh, I'm so worthless. <laughs> right. Yeah, but the fermenters don't have anything to do with that. Yeah, right. That's my own fault. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I, you know, I'm just in awe that you did that. Uh, but I agree that it's got to be a great learning experience. It, yeah. It, as long as you don't want to become an expert at a particular style, then it's a good learning experience. Um, and it has really affected how I sort of brewed since then, especially the timings that I spend on things now, because I would absolutely brew by the book prior to this if it was a... Mm-hmm. If it was a lager, that means 90-minute mash. And 
a 60 minute boil or maybe a 90 minute boil. Well, by the end, everything was a 45 minute mesh and a 30 minute boil. I don't care what, yeah, well, how much DMS it might have. Well, you know, and, and DMS isn't really that much of an issue these days, uh, you know, right. so, um, well, man, uh, I, I'm seriously impressed. Uh, we've been talking to Martin Keane, a crazy man who brewed 99 beer styles in 99 weeks. It <laughs> is still brewing. Well, and actually, before, before we let him go, just remind people where they can actually go back and revisit this entire antical thing that you did. Yeah, yeah. so the, the YouTube channel is called the Homebrew Challenge, and you will find... Every single beer, all 99 on there uh, with a tasting video at the end. So you got to see how they turn out. Um, yeah, the homebrew challenge. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to have like... to watch the Ralph beer one just so I can make fun of you. Oh, yeah. please. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, Drew lives uh, by watching YouTube videos, so I know what he's going to be doing over the Christmas holiday. Hey, why not? They're easy and, uh, they're easy and they're there. All right, right. So again, the homebrew challenge. And now, of course, it sounds like your next challenge is to figure out where to go from 99 beer styles and 99. People have suggested so many things, but uh, yeah, I have some ideas. Good. Cool. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes, so go and watch some videos. And Martin, I hope that uh, one of these days we can all get together for a beer, man. It sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. I'll bring my finest Ralph beer. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you dare. (laughs) All right, man. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Man... I just, I, I'm kind of stunned by the whole thing. I, I'm just in awe of his, uh, of his industriousness in, in trying to do that. But one thing that I thought was really interesting was talking to him about how he went through the evolution that most home brewers do in terms of brewing system and ingredients and styles that he liked and stuff. Although where it takes most of us a few years to go through all that, he did it all in 99 weeks. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm more stunned that his mental health didn't suffer from this. <laughs> well, we don't know that because we didn't know him before he did it. This is true. But no, I mean, absolutely admirable. I would love to see a kind of a breakdown of like lessons learned and lessons applied you know and we talked a little bit about that in the in the interview but still absolutely admirable that he pulled that off and thank god i it wasn't me yeah really but again you know what a learning experience that would be in terms of how to brew the equipment that you needed and you know in a way he kind of uh proved the simple homebrewing theory because as he went through this, he got simpler and simpler with everything he was doing. Uh, shorter mashes, shorter boils, pretty much just kind of like uh, cutting back on everything that wasn't absolutely necessary just because he had so much to do. I mean, can you imagine kegging a new batch of beer every week? No. No, honestly. <laughs> right. right now, now, of course, I'm also kind of a spate brewer, which means, you know, like... Coming up to, say, NHC, which we talked about earlier in the show, uh, I will probably be brewing like a mad person and then kegging everything up, like, literally as we're as we're getting ready. Right. So I do that because apparently I like the stress of doing that. I could not imagine the, <laughs> the steady humdrum of thumb, 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 you know. Uh, but like I said, more power. You're the kind of person who lives for deadlines anyway. You know, you don't do anything until you're going to die if you don't. Pretty much.
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Martin, thanks for talking to us. Uh, and good on you. If any of you people out there have done something half as crazy as this, let us know. Send us an email to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Give us a call at 626-765-1AL. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text. Let us know what kind of crazy stuff you've done like Martin. Uh, I don't think that anybody's going to beat him, though. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we will wrap this baby up. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. everybody welcome back we're gonna keep this short because everybody's busy right drew's gonna tell you about something other before we get out of here yeah well and before we get into something other don't forget that we have an all q a show coming up here so get us your questions podcast at experimentalbrew.com you got plenty of questions for the new year we know that so get them into us all right and now something other than beer it's something that i have to admit i like some of it and i hate some of it but i'm going to tell you about it anyway because i know a lot of people out there are talking about it and that's uh, Yellowstone, which is now, I think, what they just did their mid-season on season five. And uh, the reason why I'm recommending it is just for the soundtrack and the vistas. You know, it's nominally sort of an updated version of Dallas involving uh, cattle ranchers and violence in Montana, as opposed to oilmen in, in Dallas, Texas. Um, it is a... So proper that is dedicated to the worst ideas of violence in favor of the rich uh, and manly men doing manly men things. But at the same time, like I said, it's oddly compelling. It's very, very vengeable. And the soundtrack is pretty much half of what I've already listened to on, on my gizmos anyway every day. Uh, so yes to watch it, no to absorb it as a means of life. Because um, to me... Like Game of Thrones, which was the other show that that my wife and I binged for a while, uh, it is completely, completely bingeable. Uh, one of the shows is about the worst of human behavior, needless violence, and court politics, and the other one has dragons. <laughs> okay. So there you go. There's my something other for, for the week. Uh, meanwhile, I think it's time to get out of here. Yeah, it certainly is. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. 
You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. And we're also on Twitter as EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang around on a bunch of different homebrew forums, uh, the AHA Discussion Forum, uh, Brews Brothers, uh, the Beer Garden at the Brew House. Drew, you can find in the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, and we like that too, you can always email us at experimentalbrew.com, and that's also where you can send the questions for our upcoming Q&A episode. Or if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, we got a phone number, 626-765-1AL, where you can leave us a voicemail or send us a text with some of those questions. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.